This is the Stars and Bacteria podcast. I'm Jas, and you're listening to episode one, a conversation with Dr. Sne Kemka. As you will see, Sne's career has taken many twists and turns. After graduating from medicine, Sne started off by specializing in colorectal surgery, but later switched to ophthalmology, where he specialized in eye cancer. However, he always had other interests, particularly in business and entrepreneurship. And so, whilst working as a doctor, he founded a company called MediLetter, which focused on digitalizing dictated clinical notes. Having tasted his first success, Snape pursued this interest further, joining Bupa, the private health insurance company, as an associate medical director. A few weeks into Bupa, and Snape realized he wouldn't be returning to medicine and gave up his training position. At Bupa, he was quickly promoted up the ranks, and by the time he left, he was a medical director and head of healthcare development. After Bupa, interestingly and unconventionally, Sne went to work for CERN in Geneva, where he spun out a company capable of producing machines that could deliver proton beam radiotherapy. After this, Sne went to work for a large US healthcare company called Aetna, where he is currently the president and head of population health and digital primary care. Let's hear from Sne himself. Thank you for joining us, Sne. Thanks very much for having me, Jez. Before we start, Snake, could you give our listeners a brief background about yourself and your journey from being a doctor to where you are now? Yeah, absolutely. So I think this story will resound with quite a few people who have gone into medicine for perhaps the wrong reasons and are looking for a career outside. And the thing about many doctors is they're highly intelligent, highly motivated polymaths who have got a, a range of interests. And they find the more and more senior they get in their career in medicine, uh, the more and more specialized they get. And it becomes fairly repetitive and finding the avenues for increased professional diversity, different revenue streams for their personal income, different interest sets, different communities that they can engage with. Often people are looking for those new avenues and they don't find it in traditional medicine. So I'm one of those. I'm the son of an orthopedic surgeon and my father still works at the age of 72 and he is bread and butter orthopedics. And so as the youngest of three in a second generation Indian family where my brother and sister hadn't gone into medicine, I think the onus very much was for me to go into medicine. I was at boarding school at Harrow and I was encouraged there to really pursue my passions. And my passion at the time were really languages. I wanted to do French and English at university. And uh, my father had a chat with me and said, you know, well, why don't you do medicine because it'll be a nice stable career. And at the age of 17, I decided that uh, that was probably a sensible thing to do. So I went into medicine. Now that's not to say I didn't enjoy medical school. I found it absolutely fascinating. And I think medical school is a place of great privilege. You get to see and do and learn things that very few other people ever will. And uh, not for a second would I regret having gone down that route of medicine and medical education. It was absolutely fascinating. But I think to be a really outstanding doctor, you need to be passionate about being a doctor. You really need to care about the science, care about the people, and be able to fit into uh, a management structure which allows you to be standardized because a standardized doctor is usually best. I was not any of the above. And so while I was working as a doctor, I was looking at ways of expanding my, my realm of commercial capabilities. And so instead of doing my research afternoons and doing scientific studies, I was actually busy setting up uh, businesses. And so with a friend of mine from Accenture, I set up a company called MediLetter. And uh, MediLetter was all around doing digital dictation. So doctors in hospitals were traditionally dictating very long letters on small tapes which often got lost and the patient didn't get the communication. It was a very poor infrastructure. And so as the digital era began to arrive in the early 2000s, I saw the system of dictating on digital dictaphones. It's sent out to a, a BPO in India, typed up overnight and sent back with much better accuracy and timeliness than, than the usual route. 
So I set up a company, we called it Mediletta, and it was fantastic. We sold about 18 contracts in 18 months, and three years into the business, we sold it for a good chunk of money to another outfit called Dictate, an American company that was doing the same thing in the, in the UK market. And so I thought to myself, hey, this, this business thing is easy. Uh, it's a good way of making quick money. And, uh, <laughs> and I've spent the rest of my career learning that that's not exactly true. Um, but it was a good reason for me to transition. And so for the last seven years, I came to work for this large US health insurance company called Aetna, mm-hmm. where I've been running population health services. And what, what I've been doing is, is really businesses in digital health services and data analytics. The, the projects have ranged from setting up the NHS in Qatar, which mm-hmm. my, myself and my team did in a five-year contract, to setting up a business in India that does digital primary care for people who live in big metro cities in India. And that's grown to three and a half million customers and about $55 million in revenue in the last five years. So some quite interesting, diverse and exciting things along the way, Jazz. I want to dig a bit further about your current role in population health and working in various places around the world, whether it's Qatar, India or South Korea, where you find yourself building things from scratch or completely changing how certain things are done. Now, these places, they have cultures very different from the UK. How has that experience been like? So it's a really good question. And it's one that that people perennially struggle with because to innovate is truly difficult. To break the mold is truly difficult. And I really take my hat off to entrepreneurs and to people who really do break that mold, who may go on to have unicorn valuations. But breaking the mold in a sector is extremely important because you need to change everything. You need to change perceptions. You need to change expectations. You need to change ways of working. You need to change reimbursement structures. You need to engage people and bring hearts and minds with you in a a very different way. So let's just talk about a couple of these examples. So in Qatar, what we did was the Qatari government had decided they want to go from a fully privately funded system to a fully publicly funded system. They wanted an NHS. And so we won the contract to go and deliver that. And there were three layers in which we were delivering. One was putting in the administration that you need for an NHS. Two was then doing something with the data environment and making sure that was getting right. And then three was providing health services which kept people out of hospital, virtual GPs, disease management services, things like that. So there, three things I learned along the way. One was working in a completely different country and culture and adapting to the way they're working and making sure you were dealing with a client need was interesting and tough. Two was working for governments. So we were working for a government and uh, government priorities change considerably according to public demand and other factors depending on where you are. So working towards a government is always a little bit tricky. And the third was working in a large corporation because getting a corporation that was probably you know, traditionally involved in health insurance to think about a completely different structure was challenging in its own, own way. But the rewarding thing is when you break those molds and you make it successful, you really have achieved what others can't. And that, that feeling of self-fulfillment is huge mm-hmm. because where others have you know, gone down a well-trodden line, you've gone against that grain, you've broken the mold. And if you're successful commercially, that's very satisfying. And so in India, building this business of $55 million in the PL really has been a startup, scale-up sort of experience. Yep. And what we're trying to do is disintermediate how care is provided to people in India in a very fractured way. And what's happening is that people love the proposition. It's a very compelling proposition. So they vote with their feet. They come and buy the product from us. And the, the numbers then follow the purpose. If I just take the Qatar example where you're introducing the NHS, I always wonder that, say in the UK, if we had to design our systems again from scratch, including the NHS, should it look like the one we have today? Or rather, what should be the same and what should change? And you've had an opportunity to do something like that in Qatar. And so reflecting on that, is there anything you'd want to preserve or change with the current setup of what we have in the UK? So um, I love that question. And I love it because I have an answer for it. The answer is that the DNA 
of the NHS is the best DNA of any health system that I have come across in the world. And I've come across many, many different structures for health systems, you know, partly publicly, partly privately funded, health insurance, non-health insurance, you know, all these different types. The NHS's DNA is that through a system of taxation, we will spend a capitated budget, uh, but allow every individual in this country to get free at the point of care access. And as long as that DNA doesn't go away, we will always have a very successful system. The other thing that I think is really important is the primary care angle. So we spend about 8% of our GDP on healthcare, whereas, you know, in, we all know in the States it's reaching 19, 20%. Part of the reason we only spend 8% is because we have a very strong gatekeeper model through primary care. Sure. And our deep infrastructure and history of general practitioners who look after the vast majority of healthcare needs, I think is a fundamental enabling block of any NHS system. And many systems don't have that, and they're missing a big trick. But what I think has gone wrong recently in, in the last 15, 20 years is that the NHS has become politicized. And right. by becoming politicized, it's become managerialized. And so now what I see is vast swathes of money going into shifting the deck chairs around and not going on to patient care and increasing levels of bureaucracy and control coming in, where actually, if you were to concentrate on the end product, which is caring for patients and spending money on that, you'd be much better off. And so I think things have started to go awry. And I see some redress coming in, but right. I fear that that would be the destruction of the NHS. What do you make of the argument that the NHS will always need an increasing amount of funding to keep it sustainable? Do you share that view, or do you think there could easily be a reallocation of funds to make it function better than its present state? So I wouldn't talk about it in absolute terms um, and say, you know, we need to put an extra 20 billion into the NHS or 40 billion over the next five years, which is how the vast majority of people think about it. I think what we need to be doing as a society and as a government is saying, how much money are we putting in to looking after people's health and social care needs? Because the two have a very clear blurring. Now, when I talk about health, I'm not talking about sickness. So what I do think we need to do is have a refocus on the public health agenda and the preventative health agenda. Certainly. Which is, you know, how do you, over 50 years, decrease the incidence of non-communicable chronic diseases? How do you make changes to the public health arena, such as alcohol and cigarette smoking, that is going to make a fundamental difference? We all know that if you invest $1 in smoking cessation today, in 15 years time, you'll have saved $250 in, mm -hmm. in, in costs related to smoking. But unfortunately, governments don't think like that. They think about the short term. And so I think a reinvestment into the public health, you know, how we structure, you know, riding bicycles rather than driving cars, changing children's education around our nutrition, taxing poor food producers or fast food chains, or indeed supermarkets who promote unhealthy foods. I think all of those things really do need to happen because that then leads into what the NHS has. And the NHS is not a health system, it is a dealing with sickness system. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. But you can then sustain the funding without too much growth, as long as you are finding that balance. And then when you come to the back end of it, I think we're going to have an explosion of social care need. Local governments are sinking so much cash into this that, you know, some can't collect your dustbins, because right. they're putting too much money into care homes. That will very soon become unsustainable. And a solution is needed on that side of things. I couldn't agree more about the preventative care aspect and how what we have is a sick care system rather than a healthcare system. To unpack this a bit further, I found that through medical school and even my years as a junior doctor, there was very little attention or emphasis given to the preventative aspect or on the importance of exercise, fitness, sleep and nutrition. It was almost absent from the curriculum and in clinical practice. And even where it was mentioned, it was just paying lip service. Aside from the short-termism and myopia, can you think of any other reasons for why this is the case? 
It's just tradition. I was probably trained in medical school at least one decade, if not two decades before you. Mm-hmm. But I don't expect there would have been that much difference in our curricula. You'd have been taught about the minutiae of mitochondrial disease, and you'd have had to learn all of the cranial nerves, I'm sure. But nobody spent even a couple of days with you talking about healthy nutrition and um, the benefit of uh, vitamins in your diet or how to deal with mental health stressors and things like that. It just doesn't form part of the traditional medical education system. As technology increases around us and as we get a lot more information available at our fingertips, whether that be through sort of machine learning, AI, symptom checkers, doctor decision aid tools, we don't need to cram all that information into our heads. And so one thing that I would really encourage and I think is beginning to happen in pockets is the changing of the undergraduate curriculum for doctors in training. So learning about empathy and communication skills, the things that keep you healthy is very, very important. And rather than stuffing our heads full of knowledge about obscure medical terminology, having a recognition of it, but then having the tools and the technology at our fingertips on our telephones or iPads or whatever that can help us to get to that decision. It's much more about the art of being a doctor and less about the science of being a doctor, but also rebalancing the focus of a doctor's training from dealing with disease to learning how to prevent disease. And I think that will start helping to shift things. Now, At the moment, what's happening is the doctors are staying very much in the deal with disease, and you're getting lots of other non-medical people who are coming in. Now, often that comes from the consumer angle. So when you think about health and wellness, you don't think about the NHS. You probably think about Nike Fit or or some sort of other consumer thing. So what's happening is that gap is being filled by consumer organizations, and they're being regarded as the new paragons of health. So the Apples and the Amazons and people like that who will go into health that's where they're going to find their nirvana because traditional health systems are not filling that gap. Going a bit back to earlier, the health systems that we have, and you mentioned, you spoke very highly of the current system that we have, which is having sort of free at the point of access care. Certain people would argue that if you take three concepts regarding setting up health systems, whether it's universality, affordability, and quality, that it's only ever possible to try and achieve two out of those three. How much would you agree or disagree with that sentiment? I disagree with it wholeheartedly. I think universality is, is necessary for a whole host of reasons, one of which is decreasing polarization in society. And, you know, we're living in a day and age where there's an increasingly polarized society. So universality is, is, is absolutely a must. Quality and affordability go very much hand in hand. What I've seen in health systems around the world is that lack of quality is the most expensive thing around. Lack of quality introduces duplication, mistakes, Overcosting, overcharging, shorter lifespans, less economic productivity. So, you know, people who don't get quality healthcare can't go out and be economically productive, which hits the, hits the economy much harder. And so, low quality healthcare leads to higher prices and lack of affordability. And absolutely, investing in high quality healthcare will, in the medium to long term, lead to greater affordability. And greater affordability then leads to universality. And the three are very deeply interlinked. And if anybody's suggesting that um, you, you can't get all three, then they're not designing the right healthcare system. Many predictions have been made and you know, much has been said and written about upcoming trends in healthcare and how the future of these spaces will play out, specifically with regards to the increasing role that technology will play in it. If I was to draw a line, a spectrum, where one was either cynical about this view, skeptical, agnostic, optimistic, or a staunch believer, whereabouts would you fall on this? <laughs> my belief in human behavior is that we are generally quite reactive as humans. 
but we like to settle back to normal patterns of behavior. And humans are a creature of habit. So I think once the pandemic is truly over and we're not worried about a second or third wave and society has returned to normal, I'm pretty certain that we will return back to 80% of what we did before, whizzing around on airplanes and beeping our, our cars and uh, doing all the stuff that, that we've been enjoying not doing recently. I just think the world will normalize back to that sort of globalized place. Um, it may take a little while to get there. But my prediction is that we'll return to 75 to 80% of, uh, of that. I do think that there will be some sustained digital behavior change um, across many systems, uh, mm-hmm. one of which is, is, is healthcare. And so one of my big personal passions in this business in India that I created is around the use of digital in primary healthcare. To get on my soapbox a little bit about this, so I, I touched earlier on the need for a good primary care system. Now, primary care it can be, it's quite expensive to deliver if you do it all through bricks and mortar. And for the consumer, the idea of taking a day off work, going and sitting in a GP surgery with lots of other people, sniffly colds, sitting around you, waiting two hours, seeing a GP for 10 minutes, coming out, not remembering your conversation, that model is dead. That's not going to work in the future. Mm-hmm. And so primary care really has the opportunity to leapfrog into digital because about 70% of primary care can be done without physically laying hands on a patient. It's about taking a good history, having a good look, making a, a diagnosis, thinking about a treatment plan, or it's about a mental health thing, or it's about dealing with a chronic disease, or it's about you know, something that doesn't require you to physically lay hands on the patient. So I think the use of digital consultations will definitely rise, and I think it'll be accelerated by COVID. But I think that's very important, because then what you can do is you can plug in the physical as you need it around there. And I call it the digital economy. But if you need to take blood from someone, well, we deliver Amazon and food and whatever to everyone's houses. Why can't we go to people's houses, go to people's offices, take bloods, take pathology samples from them there mm-hmm. um, and not have the patients traveling? If you need to get medicines, you can easily order them online, get them delivered to you. If you need to manage your chronic disease, it's well known that you're much better off on a digital program where you get much more bespoke engagement and engage with a disease management program you know, digitally or with your mental health, the anonymity of um, being able to go online for online CBT or counseling for mental health issues, we all know that that's the case. And so I see that primary care environment moving much more into a digital sphere. And I think that's the first opportunity. Now, secondary care, where you need to put a scope in someone's mouth or you need to put an injection in someone's arm, or you need to take an x-ray or something like that. Of course, you're going to need physical locations for that. But there's a lot of it that can be moved into the digital arena. And consumers want it. The system wants it. And the financial drivers are the, are the right ones behind it. So I see that really coming through over the next decade, really. Many people have observed and commented on the fact that the pandemic has almost helped expedite the uptake of certain you know, technologies, including uh, telemedicine in, in the primary care setting, something which has been a struggle uh, for the past decade or so. Do you think that's somewhat of a signal to show that there is still that cultural cynicism of adopting technologies within the NHS from a clinician's point of view? There's a fun quote that I've seen on various posts on social media saying, what was it that led the digital transformation of your healthcare business? Uh, Mm -hmm. Was it your CEO? Was it your CTO? Or was it COVID? And it's definitely COVID. And COVID has definitely been an accelerator and a catalyst. I don't think it was the, the reason for change, but it certainly accelerated things. And I think there will be some sustainable change. I do think doctors' attitudes have changed around it. I mean, you know, rather like patients, it's, it's, it's that old Dr. Pepper advert. 
try it, you might like it. And once you've tried it, uh, you know, we, what we find at our services, once the patient has tried it, 75% of them come back and want to do it again that way, which is digitally. And it's the same thing for doctors as well. Once they've overcome the initial hump of doing a digital consultation, it's much easier to do the second and third. And then they find it's actually a much more efficient way of seeing people. And so, yeah, I think that, that slow realization will come. Now, there are times, you know, the thing about a doctor is that you've got to give touch, time, and compassion. So you can give time and compassion digitally. You can't give touch. And so touch is an important component. You've got to have that physicality, but it doesn't need to be in the model that we've currently got, which is not fit for purpose for today's digital world. You also mentioned financial drivers. Do you think that capital deployment, you know, whether through private equity or, or VC, will that be a sustainable increase? Or is that also something which is just reactionary to the moment, a bit of a fad? No, all of the private equity houses and the investment houses are really thinking about their digital investment strategy. Mm-hmm. And I think where that, that's not a fad. I think where that starts and where you start building businesses, that will accelerate the pace of development of digital businesses, which will accelerate the pace of adoption, which will then re-accelerate the pace of investment. And I see that as an ever-virtuous circle. And I'm very encouraged to see the money getting in behind this. In some parts, of course, there's been some absolutely crazy valuations. And I hope that that doesn't spoil, that rotten apple doesn't spoil the barrel. But as a sector, no, I think that there's a huge move towards that. And I think it's, it's going to be a sustained uh, movement in that direction. If we look at the state of the public health system, do you think at the political, bureaucratic or administrative level, will there be a more open mindset towards change? And will this mindset sustain? And this is where my personal bias comes in, because I see more frustration there. The issue uh, in privately funded privately invested, hyper-efficient companies, I can see the pace changing. I fear for public health. I fear for the WHO. Let's take, let, let's take that as an example as the biggest public health body in the world. That's come under severe criticism, some of it Trumpist and therefore not, not validated, but some of it quite validated mm-hmm. in how they've acted and how they've reacted. I fear that public health systems have been traditionally slow to move and they sit within a bureaucratic government or NGO type of environment. I do think that people like you know, the, the Gates Foundation and other privately funded bodies will help to accelerate that pace of change. But if we're really talking about public health, we want to be talking about the health of people in developing and underdeveloped economies. You know, there's so much more that could be done there, but the money is never going to really follow into those geographies unless it's through the, you know, the likes of the Gates uh, and whatever. So it's a very long way of saying I have some skepticism about the pace of change. Will we be prepared for the next epidemic that comes our way? Maybe a little bit better? I'm not sure. I'm skeptical. Let's speak briefly about incentive structures and working on complex problems. The area where some neuroscientists make the most money isn't researching cures for dementia or motor neuron disease, but it's working for social media companies like Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and helping them advise in how to make these apps more addictive to increase engagement. How do you think these incentive structures could be better aligned so neuroscientists are actually working on the most challenging problems, which deliver the greatest impact per input for society? <laughs> you ask an absolutely fascinating question. It goes deeper than that. It's about where do the drivers and incentives come for in society? I mean, what the social media giants and the Googles of this world have been able to do in such a short space of time has been nothing short of phenomenal. I think behind it come very nice share price valuations and enterprise valuations. And uh, again, I sound really skeptical here, but where the money has come in behind it and led to mass influence, I think that's what's, what's helped to drive things. Mm-hmm. So when you apply it to rare or orphan diseases, then there is going to be necessarily less focus on that. In short, I'm saying 
talent will follow the money. And getting the, the funding structures right to invest in various things is usually the way to get the right talent to come and solve the problems that are needed to be solved. One of the things I've been thinking about in the background of the COVID-19 pandemic is who ultimately has ownership of health? Is it the individual? Is it the local community or authorities and services? Or is it the state? Or is it some composition of all three? That's one of the best questions I've heard in a long time. Who owns your health? So if you look at Midwest America, Mm -hmm. who owns their health? Is it the responsibility of the individuals in choosing their diet carefully and choosing their behaviors carefully? Or is it the responsibility of the people who plan the towns so that you have to use your car to get everywhere Mm -hmm. or that fill the supermarket shelves with sugar-coated products and cheese of all sorts? Is it the government funding that goes behind poor agriculture that allows the use of pesticides and antibiotics and that we as humans are only reactive to what's in front of us and therefore as a society we, we become unwell because of what's presented? The answer is it's definitely a mixture of two. I definitely think the state, the government, the way that we structure ourselves as a society hugely influences our health. What we're exposed to in our environment that is beyond our control, whether it's particles in the air from pollution or whether it's cheese on supermarket shelves, which is presented to us from an early age and therefore we choose to buy it and get fat from it. That's definitely part of the equation. But the other part of the equation is individual behaviors because not everyone ends up in the same state. Mm -hmm. Um, Some people will choose to have a different way of eating and consuming foods and drinks and whatever and maintain a better body mass index. I think as a society, we have a need to help people who can't do that through behavior change, but you cannot shirk individual responsibility completely. So the answer is it's a mixture of two. Governments have been terribly poor. And I think if public health is to focus on one thing, it's about industrial change about what is put in front of us and put in front of our children, what is put into our, into our food chains, how medicines are thought about. I mean, here's another epidemic that's, that's really silent is, you know, there was the opiate crisis that happened last year, but that's mm-hmm. not gone away. That's still there. It just came yep. to public attention. The overprescription and the industry drivers behind overprescription and medicines and making everything medical consumerist, that is not a good sentiment to be um, on. That is pushing things in the wrong direction as well. So That's another major area of redress and imbalance. The next part of the podcast is called underrated or overrated. So Sne, I'm just going to say a few phrases and I'd like you to say whether you think it is overrated or underrated and feel free to elaborate as much or as little as you want. The first one is wearables. Underrated. I think we are all going to have some sort of wearable on us to monitor our daily activities at some stage. Telemedicine? Underrated especially in the primary care space, like I talk, talked about before. The level of innovation happening in the NHS. Overrated. It's all about uh, speaking at conferences and appearing good on LinkedIn. The actual transmission of that into everyday reality is very, very small. The role of academia in increasing innovation. It's about level. I wouldn't say it's underrated or overrated. Academia is very important. Remember that innovations don't come in service and technology. It comes in new pharmaceutical compounds or vaccinations or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, academia is extremely important in, um, I mean, just on a slightly parochial angle, I do worry about the um, funding for academia post a no-deal Brexit scenario in the UK. So uh, probably underrated if I had to go with one. VC funding as a means of deploying capital to startups or healthcare companies? Underrated. I mean, more and more of it. Venture capital takes a punt. That punt allows proper innovation to happen in the private sector, which would otherwise not be there. 
And I see them as such an important part of the equation. One final question now. What is the one view that you hold in this space, which most people would disagree with you on, but you firmly believe that you're right about? That's a cracker. Um, that the NHS is the best structured healthcare organization in the world. 